Esther, my friends, we are standing at a dangerous point in history, a confluence of issues that threaten our well-being and our freedom. As someone said this past week during my study leave at a retreat, this is not a fire drill. So the question with which we are faced as people of faith is, how do we seize the moment in a faithful way, in a creative way, in a courageous way? Our scripture this morning is about one person's faithful response to an urgent crisis. One person who recognized she was in a position to do something. The story begins when Esther, a Jewish woman of beauty and intelligence, is chosen by the king of Persia to be one of his wives, to be part of his harem. The king loves Esther, and eventually he makes her his queen. He either doesn't know or doesn't care that she is Jewish. Haman, one of the king's officials, is ruthless and power-hungry. He orders all the people of the kingdom to bow down to him. Esther's uncle, Mordecai, refuses on religious grounds. The people of God do not worship any human being. Infuriated, Haman plots to destroy all the Jews in the kingdom. Mordecai hears of the plot and asks Esther to act, to petition the king on behalf of her people. But here's the problem, as she says. In order to do this, Esther will have to go to the king without being summoned. And the penalty for such presumption is death. Unless the king decides he'll hear you and extend his golden scepter. Mordecai presses Esther to take this risk, saying, Who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this? Who knows whether you are here at this place and time so that you can do this risky, courageous thing and save your people? The story has a happy ending. The king grants Esther's request to be heard, and Esther saves her people. Excuse me. This morning, Peter Anderson and I will talk about his response and the response of the Standing Rock Sioux to seizing a moment in a situation that in some ways is a microcosm of the convergence of issues of our time. A people who have long been marginalized, even the object of genocide, seek to protect their water, their resources, and their culture from forces that are more interested in profits and power than in people or a sustainable planet. I invite you to listen to Peter's experiences with an open heart and to hold it in your hearts prayerfully. When we hear stories about speaking truth to power and standing up, taking risks, it helps me to remember that not only Esther, but the Old Testament prophets like Amos and Isaiah and John the Baptist in the New Testament were people who invited people to open their eyes to what is going on around them. And, of course, it was Jesus who said, the truth will set us free. We can't listen to all of Peter's wonderful stories here in worship. Uh, I'll have to call time at some point before we've heard enough. Uh, But you can hear more uh, and see more of his slides during a Sunday seminar that follows uh, our coffee hour. It'll start at 1130 in the fireside room.
So let, let me just say in a nutshell, the Dakota Access Pipeline was being rerouted across tribal lands, uh, the tribal lands of the Standing Rock Sioux, is that correct? And, uh, and the Standing Rock Sioux opposed this, but let, let me, let, before you get started, let's clear up one thing. They call themselves water protectors, not protesters. Could you say something about that? Well, I'm a water protector. And what that means, it shifted the game. And instead of um, people, the Indians being viewed as protesters, uh, they're viewed as people who are um, taking care of the land, but nurturing the land. Um, and, and, and paying respect to their elders and uh, expressing a deep love for the generations coming after all of this. And um, they're also expressing a deep love um, for all the other critters that they share of uh, the Missouri watershed with. Um, so in that sense, they are protectors. And that's really the essence of what their resistance is all about. It's um, a resistance based on, on a true act of love and incredible courage. Um, a few years ago, Melanie Fitzpatrick spoke at her first Green Chautauqua here, and she's a climate scientist, and she was an expert, one of the recognized experts about ice in the Antarctic. And she started her talk with a line something like this, I've had a long, lifelong love affair, everybody perked up. My, my beloved is dying. The ice is melting. It's too warm. And that really touched my heart. Because most scientists talk in terms of numbers, like abstract ideas. And Melanie spoke from her heart. And it was really beautiful. Um, and she expressed her deep, her, her, her concern, her heartbreak about uh, an ecosystem that is disappearing, and probably in our lifetime. And that's, that, that hit a core because I also have had a lifelong love affair with rivers and creeks. And our rivers and creeks are drying up from global warming. There's too much fossil, too much carbon in the atmosphere. Um, so the, the rivers and creeks are heating up and um, we are witnessing the loss of, of the salmon and the steelhead. They've only been here for 25, 30 million years. And in my grandchild's life, he will probably witness the loss of the salmon and the steelhead. And that's something to feel a great deal of remorse about. Um, I worked on a couple of creeks in the Napa Valley. And on one of the creeks, um, I walked two or three miles with a botanist to inspect the creeks. He wanted to see what kind of progress we had made in protecting um, all, all the wildlife and, and the trees and the flowers. And as we walked, I noticed that he was weeping. And it's the first time I've ever seen a professional biologist or botanist weep. And I turned away from it, and I didn't want to acknowledge those feelings in me, in myself. And eight years have passed since that time, and in those eight years, we have lost a lot. Uh, our monarch butterflies are disappearing, our, our bees are disappearing, our native bees are disappearing, our Mount Tamalpais, uh, the tan oak is disappearing, has disappeared. Um, and so I, I ask this question, how do we express our, our, our sense of loss, our grief? And 
that's, that's been a very difficult um, issue for me to wrestle with because we are not inclined to go there. And so when, when I noticed um, in, in, in April that the, the Lakota Sioux woman had stepped up and half a dozen women at the Standing Rock Reservation said, you know what, we're taking a stand here. We're drawing a line and this pipeline will not come here. It shall not come here, and we will put our bodies here, and we'll set up our teepees here. And that struck the court with me. I said, ah, finally, somebody is taking a stand that is appropriate to the threat. And um, I realized that uh, I had to go there, and um, after the General Assembly in Portland, where we actually turned down an overture to divest from fossil fuels, I realized then and there that Christina and I were going to Standing Rock. And this is, um, what you see here is a remnant of the herd, the great buffalo herd in the United States. 80 million existed here when the white man first landed here. Um, this particular herd is descended from 20 buffalo that were discovered in Yellowstone Park as the last remnant buffalo herd that hadn't been exterminated. And my friend Hawk, a Mohawk, that helped me set up our tent teepee, had a, 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 a copper coin that was printed by the government in 1860. And that coin said, one buffalo, one Indian, one dollar. It was government policy to exterminate the buffalo because they knew if the buffalo were exterminated, we would break the backbone, the will of the Lakota Sioux Indians. And then all of their land would be up for grabs. We could rush in there and take it. Uh, Genghis Khan would be envious. It's the biggest land grab in the world. And we took it. So we went back to Standard and the people who started this protest movement were women, the most amazing women. And I have some, some pictures of them. I'd like you to look at their faces. This woman is Cheryl Angel. She is one of the leaders. She would set up one of the first tents at Standing Rock. And she's, she's an elder and she, she is a force of nature. And her adopted daughter is Lila June. Lila June is a recent graduate of Stanford University. She's an honor student and she's an elder because she has so much wisdom. Um, I heard her recite one of her poems just before we participated in the, in the Women's Silent Prayer March, which Lila and, and Cheryl helped organize. Um, if you come to the fireside room later, you can hear one of her poems, one of the most beautiful poems I've ever heard in my life. Um, this is Winona LaDuke. Uh, she's another force of nature. Harvard graduate, um, a native of an Indian tribe in Minnesota. She and her tribe stopped the Sandpiper Pipeline in Minnesota. And she realized that we couldn't just take this issue pipeline by pipeline. Uh, we'd be doing this for the rest of our lives. And she came to Standing Rock because she wanted to support this movement here. And she also wanted to get the message across to the world that we can't just keep putting in these pipelines. We have to keep this stuff in the ground if we're going to stand a chance of preventing catastrophic global, global warming. 
this lovely woman. Um, Christine and I met a year ago when we went down east to, um, to, to Chicago. And she was living in a tent in Nebraska, and her tent was set up right in the path of the Keystone Pipeline. She was not going to leave, ever. And when the Keystone Pipeline was turned down, she moved her tent to Standing Rock. And I met her again at Standing Rock. This is her tent that was set up in the path of the Keystone Pipeline. And this is what Standing Rock looked like when Christine and I first got there. There are fewer than a thousand people. And keep in mind that, and this is where the original encampment was. This is where um, Cheryl's teepee was. It's probably that one right there with a, with a beautiful painting on it. And the village expanded. This is what it looked like. Remember, this started with just a dozen women who had no idea that there would be this kind of a response. In December, what you're seeing here, you'll notice the snow on the ground. 10,000 veterans came to Standing Rock. I was one of them. 10,000, what you see here is a chain of cars coming in on the only road that was left open. This chain of cars sometimes back up a mile out of sight over the, over the hills. And they, these cars, these veterans were coming in from all over the country, um, 24 hours a day, for three days solid. It was an amazing sight. Can you, before you move on, why? They were there to join the woman. These are veterans, combat veterans, who, and this is a story I heard a lot. Um, we fought the wrong war. We fought in Iraq and Afghanistan, and there are even veterans from my age group who had been to Vietnam. We were all fighting for the wrong things, and some of them had done terrible things. And they came there for atonement and to finally fight the right fight. They felt they were fighting to defend our land, our water, and the rights of the Indians. And that was a beautiful thing to witness. It was a beautiful thing to be a part of. So this is what the camp looked like before all 10,000 veterans came in. Um, all those green tents there are army tents. Now this is Cheryl and her adopted daughter, and I don't know her name. And once again, Cheryl is, is one of, Cheryl Angel is one of the leaders, and she and Lila June formed a, a silent, prayerful peace march to Backwater Bridge, which is where all the young people were, were injured. They were shot with, with rubber bullets and, and hosed down with, with water in some freezing weather. And so the woman decided that in honor of that battle, they would um, put together a silent prayer march to the same bridge, like four days later. And the male elder said, you can't do that. It's too dangerous, we can't protect you. You saw what happened the other day. And they insisted that the woman not do that, and the woman said, we're going to do it. And right here you see the veterans. The veterans are starting to arrive, and this group here, maybe 100 veterans, were going to participate in that silent prayer march. And we were told that we had marched before, behind the woman. The woman would be in front with no protective gear, no goggles, no rain clothes, um, nothing. Just the clothes that they're wearing. 
And this is what it looks like. This is the silent prayer march. We walked a mile and a half in, in freezing weather, and you did not hear a sound. There are 400 women here walking in front of me. And all you heard here as we walked through the woods was the crunch, crunch, crunch of their footsteps in the grass. It, um, it reminded me of the scene of Camino de Santiago from maybe 300 years ago. This is the truck that had been burned out in the big battle. And here we are at Backwater Bridge. And what you're looking at there are roughly 400 women who have walked right up to the barrier. And this is the barrier. This is what they were faced with. And four days before, these same men had turned the hoses on, on the kids and shot them with rubber bullets. The women did not know if that was going to be the case. They stood there for two hours in the cold, not a sound. And that's this, the um, backwater underneath the bridge. And finally, the lead officer in charge of the National Guard gave 10 of the elders permission to go down to the water to bless the water. And that's what you see here. 10 of the elders who've been allowed to pass through the barbed wire and they've gone down to bless the water. And you see the burning sage there. Could you, could you say, some, my understanding from what you've said to me is that that um, nonviolence was important and ceremony and ritual were important throughout this project, this process. Could you say yeah. something about the interplay of of nonviolence and ritual? The leaders, the women, took their grief and their rage and said, "We have to channel it into love." And this is the message that into love that will be expressed in a nonviolent protest. No matter what they give to us, no matter what they serve to us, we will remain in prayer. And every morning at 6:30, cold and dark, we come to the prayer to the sacred fire, and we stand there. And this message would be repeated by the women elders. We shall remain in, in prayer for them. We, 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 we will remain in, in, in peace, and everything we do will be in prayer for peace. And, and that is what we must honor. And for you young soldiers coming here with, with a desire to charge up the mountain in front of us, no, that's not acceptable. We all will walk in peace. And that message was repeated over and over and over, every morning at the sacred fire and every night at the sacred fire. It was like listening to Joanne's sermons. It was like the good word repeated over and over and over and being hardwired into my brain. And it was like um, being, it's like reading a story to children. Now, I remember how much my kids loved to hear Dr. Seuss read over and over and over. And it makes a difference. Um, the message is so important. But not only did they repeat the message over and over and over, they walked the talk. Every leader there at Standing Rock had been arrested. It wasn't just the young kids. It was the leaders, the elders. An incredible role model. And they were all sleeping in tents, on the ground, in contact with Mother Earth. 
not staying in four-star hotels. We are all there together in, in contact with Mother Earth and walking to protect Mother Earth and singing the songs and beating the drums. In the summertime, you hear the drums all night long. And it would start out in one part of the camp, and then it would spread to the next part, and then to the next part. And then you'd hear the woman singing the water protection songs, and that would go from one tribe to the next tribe to the next tribe. It was so beautiful. Um, I, I, I didn't want to be anywhere else in the world. And that was a common response for just about everybody I knew who went there. Uh, I imagine it was like what the early Christian communities were like. Two last questions. Yes. First of all, you, uh, when we talked, you said the reason that the sermon is entitled, you know, who, who do you cry with is because that was something that you said to me. Yeah. Who do you cry with? Could you explain why you said that to me about this? We, we, I think we have, we all know that there are major changes happening with the climate, and we know that a lot, we're losing a lot, and I think we, we all feel the grief, but we're not, and it's really important to share the grief. And at Standing Rock, we could share the grief. We could talk about the grief. We could talk about our anger. We could talk about our love. It's all out there, and it was like, okay. Um, in the summertime at the Sacred Fire, a Hoopa elder came from the Klamath River, and this is a country I know very well. And she was probably in her 70s or 80s, and she said, I came here because I wanted to be with you. We have lost the salmon on our Klamath River. I'm here to tell you that you need to fight this good fight. And we're here to share our grief with you, and we're here to support you. And that was some really healing for me to be able to go to Standing Rock and to see her cry those tears. And it happened again and again and again. There's still a lot of grief over the loss of those buffalo. Hmm. Yeah. Then one last question. I'm not even sure this is this is the way to talk about this, but having come, you went twice, having been there and come back, would what would you say was accomplished? What would you say is the the outcome of this? Witness. Uh, the, the message from Standing Rock went worldwide. We realized after Amy Goodman came to film the dogs biting the woman, those images went out to a million people. It's like the whole world was watching. And when I went back in December, there were TV crews from Germany, from Russia, from Canada, from all over the world filming and interviewing. Uh, this message has gone everywhere and has set a role model for what peaceful resistance looks like. We now have a role model. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. So, Peter will continue uh, with more slides and more of his story in our uh, Sunday seminar at 1130 in the Fireside Room. Thank you You're very much. Thank you for